Hello, and welcome to Eagle Alpha's Profiting from Data podcast. Our podcast series focuses on the most important topics in alternative data with industry-leading experts as featured guests. Your hosts are Eagle Alpha subject matter thought leaders who lead these lively and informative discussions. Please enjoy this and all episodes of Profiting from Data. So good morning, good afternoon, everyone. I'm very fortunate today to be joined by James and Gary. They will introduce themselves shortly. I'm Neil Hurley. I'm the CEO of Eagle Alpha. And thank you for listening to our latest edition of the podcast today. We're going to be focused on ArcticDB and this specific offering from Man Group. But firstly, let's do some introductions. I'm joined by my colleague, Thomas. Hi, everyone. Thomas Combs, CTO at Eagle Alpha. Thanks, Thomas. Gary, James. Hi, everyone. My name is Gary Collier. I'm CTO for Alpha Technology here at Man Group. And Alpha Technologies, our internal code name, our department name for all of the technology that drives the firm's investment decision making. And that means a team of 200, 230 engineers and data scientists. Yeah. And hi, I'm James Munro. So I'm a head of Arctic DB here at Man Group, but I've only had that role for a couple of weeks, just transitioning at the moment. Previously, I was CTO for Man AHL which is uh, the AHL-focused part of the group that Gary just described. Thanks very much. I'm sure most listeners know, but for those that don't, Man Group is a global technology-empowered active investment management firm focused on delivering alpha and portfolio solutions for clients. Headquartered in London, Man Group manages $144.7 billion of AUM and operates across multiple offices globally. But today we're looking forward to hearing a little bit more about Arctic TB. So, what specifically is Arctic DB? So Arctic DB, we, we call it a data frame database. And of course, we've been familiar over the years with document stores, with, with key value stores, and before that with our relational databases. Um, so Arctic DB is a little bit different. It's designed to bring our data frames right to the front and, and center. And by data frames, in f- for years, I guess, we've all been familiar with front office desktop tools like Excel. So conceptually, you know what a data frame might look like. Arctic DB is designed to deal with that type of construct, but at an industrial scale. So where an Excel table might get unwieldy beyond a certain size, Arctic DB is designed to deal with data frames that can be hundreds of thousands of columns and millions or even billions of rows and to deal with that type of construct uh, programmatically as part of modern data science workflows. Great. The group at AHL and, and AlphaTech have a very strong and long pedigree. How long have you been working with RDTB and a bit more about the story behind it? An awful long time is it's a very short answer, and that's, that's some more colour there. I mean, the Arctic DB story is a, a decade or so in the making, and you're right to point to some of the pedigree of Man Group and Man AHL as um, one, I guess, of the early quantitative managers, one of the pioneers, if you like, in that field. What we've been doing is financial like data science before data science was even the recognized term that it is nowadays. So for many decades, we've been used to dealing with, you know, in the start, often like tabular data, like market data. But of course, as you'll know well from, from your field, Neil, that the amount and type of you know, quantity, the size, the different shapes of data, and that's been like growing, exploding for some time now. And Arctic 
DB is something that we've built over the past 10 plus years to address the problem of uh, dealing with not just that type of data as an input, but all of the derivatives of that type of data as we do our quant modeling, do our portfolio construction, do our, our risk analysis. And in the early days, that often meant dealing with long and thin like time series data. But as the type of data that we've dealt with has grown, as the complexity of the models that we've built has grown, the, the instrument universe is the number of markets that we trade in the firm has grown. All of that has meant a explosion in every single dimension. And, and Arctic DB is a tool that we've built in-house to help address that. Now, I'd always describe Van Group as absolutely an asset manager, first and foremost. It's fashionable for firms to describe themselves as tech firms, even when you know, they're not really their adverts firms or, or something else. So and whilst we, we never set out from the get-go to build database technology in-house, we're you know, very big proponents, very big supporters, very big users of open source, where we see that there's a gap that necessitates like building something new that will plug into the rest of the relevant ecosystem, we'll heavy users of Python, Pandas, and, and the associated data science stack, where we see there's a gap in that ecosystem and there's something that with the expertise in-house, the knowledge of the types of problems you have to deal with, will you know, absolutely build something to fill that gap. And that's really been the Arctic DB story over the past 10 years or so that started with something that was wholly built in, in Python to address the time series storage problems that we had a, a decade ago. But as the whole data landscape has changed, as the model complexities have changed, so Arctic DB has been on this decade or so journey to where it is today and the commercial offering that we've brought to the table. There's a lot of different teams and strategies within Man Group globally. What has the adoption and take up and internal usage been like of Arctic DB over that 10-year period? Yeah, so I guess this is something I know pretty well because although I've only been leading the Arctic DB area for a few weeks now, as a user, I've actually been almost my entire time here as a user of Arctic so I joined as an engineer some 10, 12 years ago and then saw the very early versions as we started to sort of upgrade our technology stack. And those kind of early versions were for things like relatively infrequent sample data, but generally quite long histories for things like futures, listed instruments. And then over time, it's kind of got better, you know, almost like the story Gary described has got more sophisticated and scaled up with the business. It's got better at doing all the sorts of things that we're, we're used to using as quants. So things like tick data, millions, billions of rows of tick data, things like all the fundamental data we use for instruments. And then kind of more recently, say five, six years, alternative data sources. And they're kind of, it's really focused on like the research and production quant use cases. And that means that, you know, it's not used for absolutely everything. Things where you need kind of like transactional SQL stores, you know, relational data. Those tend to be things we, we still use those kind of databases for. But for tick data, alt data, lots of fundamental data, it's just almost taken over the place and gone beyond AHL into the other parts of the business like numeric, GLG, and other places. So when you think about the usage of RDDB, which is going to be an interesting discussion point today outside of Man Group, is it something that you see the use cases being solely within the investment management 
vertical or are there other potential external users of Arctic DB? We definitely think there are other potential users. They're kind of like things we feel like we've got authority about, we can we can talk about with good authority because it's very close use cases. And so the obvious thing is it's not just investment management, but the wider financial sector, retail banking, anything where there's like financial data, payments, financial service providers, fintech, the general universe of fintech. We feel that, that, that that's all a good use case because we're all using similar kinds of data. But then I think if you look at, if you think of it, not just about finance, but about the way that Gary described it was in terms of data frames in Python and about being about really good at data frames, then I think you're actually touching like the wider Python data science universe. So anyone who's doing Python data science, and that's like the leading data science stack, then really that could be a use case for them. Because at the end of the day, if you're doing research and development and you've got production use cases, you want them well tied together and you want something that's really good for the research, but you can still use from production, and you're doing data science, then you're kind of like, it's all the same use cases. So I think that's where we see it as being a solid fit, and then you're getting a bit more speculative. I'm looking forward to handing over to Thomas shortly, who runs our CTO, who runs our data science and engineering effort, who is very familiar with some of these concepts and have been getting more familiar with the Arctic TV platform themselves. But before I do that, it would be great just to get a few observations from you just to build on this theme and the future of data science within the investment management vertical. It'd be great to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so future of data science. Well, I think if we extrapolate from what's happening at Townley and what, what we hear from our peers, so, you know, there's the data story is a key part of that. We talked a bit about that already and, and the growth of data sets. And, you know, we've seen just tick volumes grow and grow. So billions of ticks per day we're, we're sort of collecting. Also, but it's not just about that. It's also about dealing with wider trading universes. And as assets become more liquid, they become more amenable to trading in a place like Man HL. And that's where you say so now we're dealing with, you know, sometimes data frames with hundreds of thousands of columns. So that kind of growth of data is a key part of it and, and also alternative types of data. Another aspect for data science is the kind of models. So the more sophisticated your data, the more your data, the kind of the more sophisticated you have to be about your models. Maybe they need to be more performant. You need to be using different types of compute. You need to be using different types of models that work for that. So there's this kind of frontier of data science models as well. I don't think that's just about data. It's also about the methods you use. Everyone, everyone knows about machine learning as a sort of frontier of models, but it's not the only frontier of models. Also, it's about how sophisticated your models are, regardless of your underlying statistical methods. You kind of want, you know, you kind of want to build more and more in. You've got to be competitive when you're predicting markets. So you want to build more and more into your models. You want to take account of different time horizons. You might be getting more sophisticated rather than treating an asset as one-dimensional kind of thing that you trade. You might be, you know, looking at correlations, all sorts of things you want to build into your model. And that kind of really relies on the good science of it. So all of that stuff we have to get better at. And all of that's butting up against, you know, our ability to deal with the data sizes, to deal with the kind of levels of compute we have to do, and it, just the sheer amount of hardware we need to run all those models. I chip in with a few, few points as well there that touch on, maybe this is a good segue into the technical discussion. And some of the design decisions around Arctic DB to deal with some of the challenges in this space around uh, scale is one, efficiency is another, and also ease of use by 
end users that are not necessarily software engineers, but are still like technical to a, a degree. And I guess you put data scientists into this camp and quant researchers. So in terms of the architecture, it's a sort of fairly novel client-side only architecture. Of course, you can still build server-side processes that use Arctic DB. It's deliberately client-side only to avoid bottlenecks, data access bottlenecks, which are you know, often the, the case with other types of technologies where you're reliant on a single server or a cluster of servers. Another design consideration has been ease of operations as well and not needing specialized admin groups, but a technology that makes it very, very easy to administer data operationally. And the, the third is with the, the sheer number of people whose job it is to deal with data. And we joke um, inside the firm here that Python is the second most popular language within like Mangrove. Of course, English is our, is our primary language that we use to communicate, but Python's the, the second most popular language. It's got to be easy to use for people. So we've got an API, which is in some ways beguilingly simple. You might look at it and think, hmm, what's the fuss about? That looks too simple. But it's like that on purpose because we want to minimize the cognitive load of the end user in understanding how to deal with the technology. So we, we try and make the technology as almost invisible as we can. And, and by doing all of these things, we minimize the operational overhead of the tech, maximize the ability to truly scale out lots of you know, tech talks about horizontal scale out isn't really. And also we, we minimize the barrier of entry for the end user to actually start using the technology to power their daily data science workflow. Great. James, Gary, that's been a great introduction and background to Arctic DB. I'm going to pass over to my colleague Thomas now, and certainly from a data science perspective, to get into a little bit more detailing about the features. Thomas? I, one of the things that I was pretty curious about, and I've seen this with some libraries that maybe start in a Python, a fully Python-flavored build, but then under the hood, they start getting optimized once they're settled on features. I'm very curious for you guys. I, I believe you mentioned that under the hood is C++. Python is sort of the top layer. It'd be great to you guys walk through kind of the decision-making process of, was that a design decision that you guys made back in 2012, 2013? Or was it something that sort of evolved where threw your hands up at some point and said, Python can't do this itself. We need something faster under the hood. Or like, how did that evolve in your decision-making over time? Yeah, it was very much the, the latter, the initial version of Arctic DB and the, the, the first iteration that we open sourced back in 2015 was Python, Python in terms of the API, because as a, firm and as a, at least the front office parts of the firm we'd moved to um, Python commencing around 2010, 2011. So people at that point were well versed in Python. It's is natural given the size, complexity of data and models that we're dealing with at the time, right, we're skilled in, in Python and, and want as many people as possible to understand the code base that the initial version was pure Python. But as the types of data that we needed to deal with grew as the complexity and the size of models that we were building grew then naturally we start to hit up against some of the limitations of python in, in terms of largely speed how can we deal with data as quickly and efficiently as we need to and as model complexity grows 
the amount of data that we're dealing with that we would call like derived data, secondary data, all of the intermediate calculations that's involved in like computations of alpha signals of portfolio construction, etc. And that also grows probably order of magnitude quicker than the input data, at least if we're being realistic. So to address some of those challenges of growth, we decided back, it was probably around 2017, 2018 or so, to commence a ground-up rebuild in C++, but preserving what, again, I'd describe as a beguilingly simple interface to the end user. Yeah, I think that's what I've seen the trend where Python has kind of become the standard for how to interact with system or the, the API layer of a lot of systems that are running on more efficient closer-to-machine code processes under the hood. Kind of on the history of development, I'm always curious with data, we at Eagle Office see a lot of different sizes and shapes of data sets, and it often breaks our systems whenever we get a new type of data coming into our system. And I'm I'm curious that if you guys could speak about some of the interesting edge cases that have influenced the development over the years of Arctic DB. You know, it's it is the sum of all of the <laughs> different pain points that you've had over the years. So it'd be great if you could uh, mention a few of those and walk through how you decided to approach those. Yeah, so I think one of the ways it's changed over the years in, in terms of the user side of things is early on we knew we needed to deal with lots of rows, if you like, and typically several columns. And, and that was a key optimization focus. But more recently and later on, it's actually become about the number of columns. And, and I spoke earlier a little bit about like, you know, the growing universe asset sizes, asset numbers of assets growing in universes. And wanting to always be able to look at that kind of data cross-sectionally. And so it's much more of a recent feature where we supporting up to hundreds of thousands of columns and being able to, it's actually quite hard to load that in Python into memory when you've got data frames that size. They can be, you know, 25 gigabyte data frames. And so really being optimized for that and then and also being optimized for like sub-selecting out columns and rows so you can look at parts of it at a time. And that also lets you connect to sort of cluster computing technologies that so different parts of your cluster can work on parts of it. So that's the kind of like one of the things that's changed about the story. Yeah, interesting. I guess, you know, there's a lot of popular file formats like Parquet would be a columnar type file format that's more biased towards column selection. I think there's, uh, you don't hear about a lot of different companies using Avro, but there's row bias. Would you guys consider Arctic DB more of a column biased kind of system uh, where you could it's columnar storage is probably fairly neutral these days across which one you care about more i mean generally they're longer than wider <laughs> most of most these cases i think that basic architecture of taking like object style storage and making it amenable to financial data that's kind of been the backbone of it and whether that's happening you know previously with Mongo now with S3 or previously in raw Python now with C++, that still seems to be working pretty well as a model and still seems to be something relatively unique in, in the offering. Ultimately, like a, a big data frame ends up like tessellated into web blocks and then it's a case of, well, how cleverly can we index that to optimize queries and, and optimize queries to uh, run in parallel against tessellated data frames that are ultimately just stored in uh, Modesty S3, if you like. I guess sort of continuing the 
how it's changed and the use cases, sorry, to interrupt there, Gary. But the like another another part of it has been the way it's really careful about versions. That generally is something that rings true across data science, so that's really important. So it's effectively like an immutable storage format. We just write new data, we don't delete the old data unless we've got so much of it we need to you know save space. But and we're just writing new data. And that means from a data scientist's point of view, you can always go back to the previous versions and understand the change in your models, the change in what you're predicting, the change in your data. So that's something that's always a growing sophistication for us as well and something we always try to leverage internally. Yeah, supporting reproducibility of research or the ability to work on out-of-sample data and lock your research on particular versions or snapshots of versions of different data frames is an important uh, use case. And you mentioned Parquet and other technologies. We're talking to a lot of people who start with their Parquet, but then when you start to think about all of the things that you need to add to Parquet to get the efficiency that we have in terms of queryability to just like stream updates onto existing data frames to handle the versioning, the snapshotting, before you know it, you've written hundreds of thousands of lines of code and you've got ArcticDB. Yeah, it, it, it was one thing that I was, you had mentioned indexing. Would it be not too reductive to say that a significant portion of what you guys have built with RDTB is in the indexing logic and how to efficiently find parts of data given a very large input of data? Is that a good way of understanding kind of the, if it's client side only, it's sort of like building, you're building the map of where to look instead of some kind of hardware running on a server somewhere. It's more on that side. That's a a useful insight. Yes, that is um, true. It's been a a big part of the challenge. And then another part of that is making sure that that data is shipped as efficiently as it can be to the full extent of your available network bandwidth to the clients to process that data. Interesting. So I kind of on that point, like the next question I have, really curious about Arctic TV or Arctic, the open source library has been out since I believe 2014. What's what has it been like sort of developing a community around it? It's it is a seriously popular open source library on GitHub. And it'd be great to hear your experiences with how you engage with developers, data scientists in the open source community and what that experience has been like for you over the years. Yeah, in terms of community engagement, it's a very outward looking technology team within AlphaTech here at MAN. I mean, a personal belief is that the best developers, the developers you want in the team are ones that look to the outside to solve problems and love to get engaged in, in open source. And almost against the grain of the, a lot of developers are more internally looking that the first thing they might think of is, well, hey, that existing solution must be rubbish. Let's bulldoze it down. Let's build something afresh in my own image. That's not the mentality that I want in the department and want in the firm. So we're deliberately outward looking and engaging and and really an open source first approach. We use over a thousand different open source packages as part of the alpha technology stack within the front office. And we sponsor and have done for quite a few years now PyData London, which is one of the I think the biggest Python, at least the biggest European Python meetup group we we host the folks there every month in the auditorium facility that we have access to with arctic 
in particular. It's an interesting journey there. When we first started thinking about commercial opportunities for it, one of the, the natural things to begin to do was we'll look and say, well, who's downloaded the existing Python-only version? And, and that led to some quite interesting findings. Of course, not everybody who downloads it actually publicizes the fact, and there are a, a million plus downloads, I think, at the moment. So it would be impossible to go through them. Anyway, we did find some interesting like, use cases there. We found Arctic Python was powering the EMEA rates trading desk at a, a big tier one bank. That was perhaps the one that made us smile with, with pleasure most. I think in, in general as well, we've talked to quite a few people, quite a few different organizations around the new version, the C++ version, and is this interesting tech to you. It's been re- received enormously well. And I was questioning the other day whether um, it seems like everyone we talk to is in the process of needing to reinvent their data platform, how they deal with uh, data. And it led me to question, are we just coincidentally talking to organizations at the right time? Or is every organization perpetually trying to reinvent how they deal with data because the explosion in every access of you know, complexity type style size is is just you know, one story of continued growth. Yeah, that's a really interesting finding that the de- evolution of data hardware software is really never done. And I think, especially with what you guys have seen over the evolution of Arctic into Arctic DB, there will always be more data. There's always going to be more complexity of the data. There's going to be more need to have it available to less skilled or less experienced people in your firm. So I think that's a yeah, really interesting journey. Talking about Arctic DB in particular and moving, mentioned towards the commercial model when you're starting to think about it, I'm interested to understand what you guys think of examples of how you'd commercialize your service, your expertise in this area. And what would be like a hypothetical customer experience? You mentioned, you know, help with production use cases or putting in a production. What would that look like or maybe has looked like for a customer so far? So, yeah, the source is available online. So the, the, one of the things is it's just super easy to try and use. And, you know, it's client side. So the other thing is you could just, in Python, pip install Arctic DB and you're away. Whether you've got S3 or not, you could try it out. The barrier to entry is purposefully, like, as low as possible. That sort of, you know, that's come with the fact that, you know, we wanted it to be super easy to get going with internally as well. And so that's like the first thing is that like people could just try it. In terms of sort of the commercial aspects of it, it's still an evolving model, license fees, support, but we've been looking and thinking carefully about, you know, having enterprise features. So that's the kind of things that you need if, say, you're running multi-data centers and you want the data to sync between them, you want that kind of DR process, you want backups to run offline, you might want to run offer online processes to kind of make sure that everyone gets the, you know, super fast option, super fast performance. You may want lots of internal analytics. You may need a management console. So those are the kind of things we're looking carefully at at the moment in terms of enterprise licensing. That's really interesting. There's quite a few examples out there of different cases I can think of. The Kubernetes ecosystem and how there's a lot of managed services on top of in different ways for Kubernetes while it is still an open source kind of at its core. So it's good to see you guys are still 
keeping this open source and sort of being additive in the process to that on top of that open source repository. I think with that, guys, that, that about wraps up the questions I had from my side, but I guess it was really great speaking with you guys. This has been mm-hmm. really fascinating and really glad to see a uh, firm such as yourselves really participating in the open source community because it, it helps everybody, helps us, helps all the, uh, <laughs> all the smaller players out there as well. So, yeah. Uh, this has been a great discussion. We've commented recently on the structural trends within asset management in terms of the sophistication, the usage of data, the growth in data specialists within asset managers. And it's great to see the RDXDB platform being there to help support these data scientists globally that have increasing complexities in terms of types of data they need to work with and everything that RDXDB is looking to solve for. This is going to be something we look forward to speaking further on We're here in late April, and we really appreciate your time today, but we're also going to get the benefit of the Arctic TB specialists joining us in New York in June. We have our June conference coming up, and one of the themes running through that will be the future of asset management. And I think it's fair to say from today's conversation that Man Group has always been at the forefront of innovation, and we really appreciate your time. And we look forward to speaking to you further on the 6th of June. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.